Welcome to the Courage Coaching and Counseling Podcast with Savon Penn, licensed professional counselor here in Portland, Oregon. Wherever you're at in life, this podcast will inspire and encourage you to be more brave in life and take the next best step between where you are and where you want to be. My guest for this episode is Sarah Sanderson. Sarah is a returning guest. Our first conversation, we talked about postpartum depression. This conversation, we talk about her first book. It's so good, guys. The Place We Make, Breaking the Legacy of Legalized Hate. It's challenging. It's it's on racism uh, locally uh, here in, in Oregon and in our nation. Uh, Sarah's a writer and a speaker and a teacher. She studied English and philosophy at Wheaton College and holds a master in teaching degree from Seattle University and a master of fine arts in creative nonfiction from Seattle Pacific University. As a creative writing teacher, she has worked with every age from preschool through adults, and she uh, was one of my youngest daughter's uh, teachers. I hope you enjoy uh, this conversation with Sarah and... Yeah, I, I hope you you pick up the book. It's it's really well done. All right, Sarah. Good morning. Thanks for coming on the podcast. So great to be here. Yes, I'm excited. This is your second time on the show, mm-hmm. and big big change uh, mm-hmm. since we last met. You, mm-hmm. you and you talked a little bit about it on the first episode, uh, mm-hmm. but you've written the book. Uh, yes, yes, the book is in the world. Yes, it's a and big thing. The place we make, and it's about uncovering the roots of racism locally he, mm-hmm. here in Oregon, Oregon City, where you mm-hmm. live. But it's been a journey into the past, but it's surprising in that there's a connection to the roots of your own family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the book, and it tells two stories. It tells the story of Jacob Vanderpool, who was saloon and boarding house operator in Oregon City in 1851. And he became the only person legally exiled from the state of Oregon under the state's anti-Black exclusion laws. So the book tells that story and not just Jacob Vanderpool, but also the people around him who worked either explicitly or sort of with complicity to make that exile happen. And then when I found out that some of those people who pushed him out were my own family members, then it became a personal story. So the book goes back and forth between 1851 and my own life and my own heart and trying to look for how has that history showed up in me? So, yeah. Yeah. Can you say a little bit about or Oregon City mm, yeah. and its importance in here in Oregon? Yes. So Oregon City, for those who aren't familiar, was the end of the Oregon Trail. It was where the people came, you know, when they put all their stuff in a covered wagon and walked across the continent. They had to come to Oregon City in order to register for their free land. So in the 1840s and 50s, 
almost everybody who came west came to Oregon City first. It was the first incorporated city west of the Rocky Mountains and a whole bunch of firsts, the first Protestant church west of the Rocky Mountains, the first bookstore west of the Rocky Mountains, the first college west of the Rocky Mountains. I mean, a lot of things were started here in Oregon City. Yes. One of my favorite parts of reading was seeing the family names, mm. the, the founder of Oregon City, John McLaughlin, uh, mm -hmm. McLaughlin Boulevard, just mm -hmm. seeing mm -hmm. the, the names of the native tribes. Mm. And mm -hmm. it's the La Tourette Falls, mm -hmm. your, your family. It just uh, gave it more of a sense of place mm -hmm. and a connection to the past. Yeah. And that was what was so fascinating for me in doing the research was all these places that, you know, were kind of meaningless to me when I first came here, the names on the roads and the different things, they sort of came alive and realizing like, oh, it's named that for a person who did a thing and what, who were those people and what were the things that they did? Yeah. So uh, can you say a little bit about early on, what hooked you and fascinated you about Jacob Vanderpool? Because as I'm reading, it's like you were like a bulldog. You had to <laughs> find and understand and learn about yeah. him. Yeah. So it actually began as an assignment in my MFA program. My professor told me to go and write an essay about something that's researched. So it was a totally wide open assignment. Could have been anything in the world. And I remember sitting down that day after I had that conversation with her and making a list of like all the things in the world that I might be interested in researching. And it was a very broad list. It was, you know, like there were oceans and there was like the science of how our eyes work and, you know, just like whatever I thought might be interesting. And Oregon's history of anti-Black exclusion made the list because I had recently had a conversation with my brother I had just mentioned to him, I had recently moved back to Oregon after being away for most of my life. And I had mentioned to my brother, you know, there's a lot of white people here. Like, that's kind of weird. And after having lived in New Jersey and Chicago and just places that were different. And my brother said, Sarah, didn't you know there's a history of anti-Black exclusion laws in Oregon? And I'm like, no, I had no idea. So that made the list of possible things to research. And I remember sitting down with my computer and just Googling like, okay, what, what might I write for this essay? And the name Jacob Vanderpool jumped out at me, I think because it felt like a, maybe it was a small enough story that I could get my hands around. You know, I feel like when we look at racism, sometimes it feels so big and so like just the whole world <laughs> and to, to think like, okay, here's one guy who was impacted by this. Could I, could I find out more? But yes, it became bigger than just that one essay. I mean, I did some research, I wrote the essay and then I ended up, the essay ended up to be 40 pages long. And of course I couldn't publish it anywhere because nobody publishes 40 page essays, right? And so I remember giving, giving it to a friend and I said, can you help me figure out what to cut so I can make this short enough that you know I could get it in a magazine or something? And she read it and she sat down with me in a coffee shop in Selwood and she said, Sarah, I don't think this is an essay. I think this is a book. 
I don't think you should cut anything. I think you should make it longer. So then I went out and found more things, but it, the why of like, what kept me going? You're right. I did feel a little bit like a bulldog. <laughs> and I think that probably gets back to an experience I talk about in the book when I was 20 and I went to Malawi in East Africa mm. on I, mission trip is one word you could use for it. It was also, I was, I was a student. I mean, I, I knew I wasn't going there to like change the world. I was going there to learn. But the first thing I learned about first morning I was there, I walked to the window and looked out and there was a group of black men sitting under the window where I'd been sleeping. And my first thought was, this is a dangerous place. And then my second thought was, you only think that because they're black. And I really hadn't known that that lie that black men are dangerous, that's, you know, everywhere in our society, I, I hadn't realized that it had implanted itself into my heart until I went to Malawi. Hmm. And so I think that was part of my motivation in working on this story was knowing that some of the lies that were out there in our society had attached themselves unbeknownst to me into my own heart and mind and so it was partly a sense of like if I work hard enough on this can I I mean I don't know it wasn't exactly atonement but it was a, a feeling of I have to figure this out for me yeah I definitely picked up on that like you're, you're trying to figure it out but you also were trying to right right some wrongs Mm -hmm. um, there was you were not comfortable mm -hmm. with how things are yeah, yeah and you spent a lot of this writing this in the last few years and mm -hmm. with where racial dissension unrest injustice mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. like just regularly in the news mm -hmm. like we can't yeah escape yeah. being aware of it or confronting it well yeah. I should say we're aware of it but I don't we choose yeah to yeah to engage with it and yeah. you, cho you chose to engage with it, even though it's hard. Well, interestingly, in May 2020, I had been trying, you know, I had written this whole other book about my own personal trauma. And maybe we talked about that last time I was on the show. I don't remember. But so I'd written that other book and it didn't sell. And in May 2020, I was on the phone with a friend and she said, Sarah, I think it's time for you to start thinking about what your next book is going to be about. And I said, I think it has something to do with racism. And I had already written some of the Jacob Vanderpool essay, but, you know, set it aside. So those thoughts had already been there. And I thought, I was thinking maybe this could become a book. And then the next week, George Floyd was murdered. And I kind of wanted to take my words back. <laughs> like, oh my goodness, I can't speak into this. Like suddenly the conversation was... There just felt like there were so many experts and there were so many opinions. And I just thought, I, I actually don't know what to say, but right. I decided at that time, okay, I'm just going to listen. I'm going to watch. I'm going to show up to this conversation in the ways that I can, and I'm going to pray and see what happens. And so it was kind of just following along that eventually led to this book coming out. Yeah. I, I do remember like maybe three years ago, two years ago, where it almost seemed like in one month or two, boom, mm -hmm. there was a mm -hmm. half a dozen, half a dozen anti-racism racism books mm -hmm. that, 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 and for white fragility books that mm -hmm. like, you, like mm -hmm. we had, or you're supposed to read. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. Oh man. And and one of the the messages was we we need to stop putting white authors and voices mm-hmm. up front. We need to that that needs to be pulled back and and put mm-hmm. people of color and hear from them. So mm-hmm. can you how, how have you done with 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 wrestling with that? Yeah. And have you gotten pushback? Uh, yeah. Like, who are you to like tell this story? Yes. I mean, first of all, from, you know, trying to sell the book to different publishers and several publishers said, no, we're not going to publish this because we're not publishing white people talking about race right now, mm-hmm. which is very, I mean, it's a fair critique, right? And I want there to be room for all the people of color who have something to say mm-hmm. to be able to say it. But I, and, and so, yeah, and I had a lot of fear about like, would people say, you know, she's not staying in her own lane or who is she to take, you know, pick up this story about this black man and, you know, why, why are you the one who's doing this? But I, I just kept feeling as I was watching that conversation unfold, like this can't just be a one-sided conversation. Like we, we can't just have people of color saying, this is how you've wronged us and white people just saying nothing right i just felt like somebody needs to step up and say yes yes we have and i'm sorry and so that was what i tried to say and then also you know owning it as my family's story and i think that so often the way we talk about racism we talk about the people who had bad things happen to them and we don't talk about the people who did the bad things and so just being willing to say like it was my family members and let's look at who they were and what they did and why so yeah 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 i liked how you described how it's easy to talk about racism or racist people as other people mm-hmm like those awful people mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. on TV doing awful things. And yeah. Slowly having that realization, or maybe maybe suddenly in in moments. Yeah. yeah. That that's like oh it it's in me. Mm-hmm. In the book you said you needed to begin examining the white supremacy in my own heart, mm-hmm. um, and you wrote that you step into the confessional. Mm-hmm. I, I make my confession to Jesus, but I leave the door ajar so you can overhear. And, you know, that, that, that was very helpful to me because you mm. wrote about the silence of good people. Mm. The yeah. complete complicity yeah. is just as destructive and hurtful and it perpetuates the problem mm-hmm. when community and the men that you describe, there's the active role in having Jacob Vanderpool expelled, but mm-hmm. it's, it's good people, a, a pastor or neighbors or communities, not saying anything, not, yeah. not being brave enough to say anything or not knowing what to say. Right. Not knowing what to do. Yeah. Like, what, what do we do with this? Yeah. And, and I hear that a lot is whether it's the, the idea of reparations or, mm-hmm. or the reality of, I live in Oregon. I live in Portland, mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. of the whitest cities in America. I don't, I don't know any people of color. Yeah. Yeah. Can you say a little bit about the challenges of that question? So what do I do? Yeah. 
What do, yeah. you, what do I do with this? Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is our question, right? That's That was my question. And I, so what I tried to show through this story or the path that God has led me on is I think one that others can follow it and which is to bring this question to a very local level, right? And just to ask, what is the story of my place, my group, my neighborhood, my family? What are the wrongs that have happened here? What, who has been harmed here? And it may take a little digging, you know, to find the the old bylaws and read them or to find the deed or to, to look in the newspaper archives or whatever it is. But once we uncover what's happened here and then connect the dots with that history and our own hearts, whatever's in our own hearts, then I think the, the steps will become more clear because it's not about some big nebulous thing. It's about something that happened here. Like I think about the town of Waldport. I don't know if you're familiar with Waldport. It's on the coast and it's just a little it's humble a little, little town. We, yes. We we used to go to a little home. Well, one of mm. our friends would rent it. It's outside of Waldport every yeah. year for like nine yeah. years. Yeah. Okay. You yeah. know it. So it's just this humble <laughs> little town. You know, most people are driving up and down 101. They're going somewhere else, right? Yeah. They're just yeah. driving it's real through. Quick. Yeah. yeah it's small. Just, and you're gone. <laughs> The town of Waldport recently learned, well, th- they knew that they had a road called Darkey Creek Road. And they recently, it was uncovered what the history was behind that road name, that there was a man who lived on that road who was African-American. And his name was Lewis Southworth. And he had been... um he was a fiddle player and he wanted to come to the local Baptist church. And they said, no, you can't come to this church. And so he lived down that road and that was why it was called that. And so over a hundred years later, this little humble town decides we're going to change our road name and we're going to raise money and we're going to commission a sculpture of this man. And so if you go to Waldport today, you can see this, life-size statue of Lewis Southworth playing the fiddle. And that's such a local thing, right? Like nobody else could do that. Only the people in Waldport could resurrect that story and put up that statue. And I, I just think there are stories all over this country that are just waiting to be uncovered. And, you know, I don't know if Everybody needs to put up a statue, but but there's there's something to be done in each local community to name the harm that's happened in the past and to turn a corner on it in some way. So I think the future of this question is is local. Yeah, a, a lot of your book you talk about your local history in mm-hmm. Oregon City. Yeah. It's not just in the state of Oregon, mm-hmm. but it was for you. It was literally like out your front door. Yeah. Just walking down to the river, your kids would swim in. With, as you've been writing the book and making, I, I can see that you're making connections with people of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to ask you about that, that dynamic or thing that comes mm-hmm. up where, 
you you you're eager to to listen and talk mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but folks are like like decline or pass mm. and and i'm asking a little selfishly because the church that julie and i go to it, it's pretty diverse lots of african-american mm -hmm. leaders are our, mm. our pastor mike dean he's black mm. and we're doing church but we're coming out of the pandemic it almost feels like we're a new church like, mm. like a, a church plant even though it's mm -hmm. uh, been in existence for maybe seven eight years mm. and and I think we do our gatherings well, but we're still trying to form deep relationships. We're still trying to mm -hmm. gather a small group mm -hmm. ministry. And I imagine that race and our stories are going to come up if mm -hmm. we're going to, if we're going to mm -hmm. do it, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm hoping yeah. that we, we do it well. Yeah. So, long setup to the question is I'm, I'm just curious what's been helpful for you. Yeah. Well, I did feel as I started writing the book, like one of the biggest things that I was grieving was that I felt this sort of racialized loneliness. Like here I am in this mostly white town. My kids go to mostly white schools. My husband's the pastor of a mostly white church. And it was like, how, how do I break out of this? How do I like change this without, you know, I don't want to tokenize people. I don't want to like, right. like, Hey, will you be my one person of color friend, you know? <laughs> and, and so I did feel stuck. And then also in, you know, writing this book and sort of naming, confessing my own internalized implicit biases, I was really afraid that in doing that, that people of color would read the book and say like, well, we don't want anything to do with you. You know, like if, if you've had that thought ever in your life, like, you know, I, I mean, I was just afraid of being, you know, canceled or whatever. But what I've discovered is that the writing the book has opened so many doors and doors to real relationships. Like I was just recently sitting down with a woman who had invited me to come and speak and we ended up sitting in her place of business and and she's a black woman and she just ended up kind of pouring out like everything that she's carried and all the racism that's come to her in just going about her day-to-day -day life in Oregon and it was so it was just such a privilege to sit there with her and and to hold that with her and so but I think that I in, in order to be ready to show up like that for people in my community with empathy for their stories, I had to first do all the work of examining what was in my own heart. So I, I feel a little bit like the book tells the story of the work I had to do before I could start doing the work, you know? And now that the book is out in the world and I have been started to be invited to, you know, this or that thing, I feel like... I wouldn't have been ready to step into those relationships unless I'd first done the work of examining my own heart. Yeah. So. Yeah. You, you, you didn't set out to be a, an expert on racism. No. Right. <laughs> but you're just like genuinely telling this story, the, like the unfolding investigation, mm -hmm. just more and more realizations that it, you said like history 
it isn't we think of history as like discrete events mm-hmm. but this is your family history yeah it and it, it was it was kind of awkward and cringy at times mm-hmm. when you would meet whether it's with people you love in your church community mm-hmm. or even mm-hmm. your own co- mm-hmm. cousins mm-hmm. like where they they're just in a different place yeah uh yeah. with you with yeah. interacting with this what would you say has been like the the most difficult part of, of writing this or, or looking at this i mean the the couple things i mean one of the difficult pieces one of the emotionally difficult pieces is just to allow myself to come face to face with the depth and the breadth of the horror (laughs) you know like to think about my ancestors who enslaved other people and to to really allow myself to sit with that and to experience and to imagine my way in as best as I could to what was that what does that really mean what are we talking about when we say millions of people were enslaved in this country and I I think it's a lot of my life I would sort of hold that at arm's length you know like well good thing that's not me now (laughs) but it was emotionally difficult work to enter into that so that was one difficult thing and then the other difficult piece was just the fear of getting it wrong of saying the wrong thing of doing the wrong thing of you know having the wrong tone and and yeah god was so good to me <laughs> just like very gently kind of nudge me along one step at a time and to say and I say in the introduction you know I I couldn't have written this without knowing that I was loved and so to to know the love of God and to, in a very personal and real way God would give me what I needed to take the next steps in the midst of the fear and the grief so yeah yeah they loved and, and forgiven mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah yeah it's so important yeah one of the things that you said was confronting racism is emotionally challenging work it's easier to hold it at arm's length to pretend it's someone else's problem repeated shock is easier than sustained sorrow yeah. and you talked about Jacob Vanderpool and a competitor mm. bringing the charge against him mm-hmm. and the judge, like the unfairness of the judge living in the competitor's hotel. Mm-hmm. It just like is so it's just so unfair, yeah. right? But this one of the stories that really impacted me was the native women mm. uh, being mm-hmm. beat, beaten mm-hmm. by settlers. Mm-hmm. And it, it going to trial, I was surprised that it would even go to trial. Yeah. But then it was such a farce, they couldn't even 
testify or admit their test testimony. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it yeah. was just a complete sham. Yeah. But not just the unfairness and the injustice, but, but just the violence. Yeah. And and just the terror and fear yeah. that, that you're just worthless and yeah. you could just be, be beaten and suffer. And there's just nothing you can do about it. Complete yeah. helplessness and powerlessness. Yeah. 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 Totally. Those, those stories. And I think that we don't, we as a society, particularly we white people, don't want to look at those stories because we we really want to hold in our minds this idea that we're the good guys, you know, that we we've like we beat the British in the Revolutionary War and we like did the right thing in the Civil War and like we've we've always done the right thing. Yay. And and I think that it's so hard to look at those things in history that are just not right to acknowledge them and to acknowledge that it was in many cases people in power you know it wasn't just a one-off like random bad person who did this it was like the laws of the land that said this is the way it will be and you know then you look at states that are today now saying like we're not going to tell these stories we don't want to teach this history and there's still i think so much shame that we can't even look at the history yeah. but what would it look like for us as a society to say okay we're gonna look we're gonna look at what really happened and we're not going to let fear or shame stand in the way of, yeah, just being honest about what happened. Yeah. yeah. As a marriage counselor, I talked to couples, uh, Gottman's four horsemen of the mm. apocalypse in relationship. Mm. And, th and three of them are, are defensiveness, contempt, and stone mm. stonewalling. Mm. And so when I'm reading these conversations that you have sometimes, these challenging mm. conversations, mm. I'm like, oh, yeah, you're being stonewalled yeah. there. Yeah. They just can't take it in. Yeah. And, I, and I think shame is part mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. But also people were even angry mm -hmm. at you talking about it in church. Mm -hmm. This is a big thing, being, being stuck at home, doing the social media thing during the pandemic, mm. with all the things mm -hmm. the last three years, mm -hmm. so just seeing how divisive. That, mm -hmm. that you know oh you're being divisive mm -hmm. don't, don't bring it up don't make me mm -hmm. uncomfortable mm -hmm. uh, but i i think a little bit of it is well that that's in the past i yeah. what I, I how can i bear any responsibility or even make it better it just is a helpless hopeless feeling mm -hmm. that i'm not yeah i'm not a bad person mm -hmm. i didn't yeah. own slaves you know those, those right. types of attitudes right, right. but but compassion and humility is so important mm -hmm. because if we have contempt for people who say those types of things nothing gets better right we just stay, stay stuck and entrenched right. in our positions right we have no influence if we just write people off as racist mm -hmm. or or yeah. ig ignorant or whatever yeah. or ha hateful yeah yeah and and we do the very thing to them that we're 
blaming them for doing to others, right? You know, when we say like, oh, those terrible people who have those horrible beliefs, like, you know, we, we keep ourselves apart. And so, yeah, it is a big leap of compassion to say, why does that person have that shame? Why does that person feel the need to stonewall this? Or why does that person feel afraid to bring this up? And, and yeah, how can we, how can we move forward? It's a, yeah, yeah. it's a big yeah. question. Yeah. I, I liked reading about Ezra Smith. Is it the last Ezra one? Fisher. Fisher. Ezra Fisher. Ez, yeah, yeah, Ezra Fisher. Yeah. Ezra Fisher mm -hmm. founded the Baptist Church. It be, mm -hmm. It's a Baptist mm -hmm. college. Mm -hmm. I was just imagining just the influence on Christians in Oregon City and in the area, mm -hmm. I'm sure, is mm -hmm. a huge impact mm -hmm. and teaching. And you reading his letters and his sermons, and yeah. you said like he, he has a heart for God. You felt yeah. like he was genuinely a man of God. Sincere, yeah. Yeah. and yet he was a product of his time. He was very mm -hmm. influenced by the culture, mm -hmm. and it's important to address the the social dynamics, like mm -hmm. the, the, the mm -hmm. place we make. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that we make what we actively teach and act out and do, but we also make by by what we allow. Yeah. Yeah. For what we what we stand by and don't mm -hmm. are mm -hmm. are silent about. And you tell the story of some people who are doing good work in this world. Can can you tell listeners a little bit about some of the people that you've met? Yeah. Yeah. So one of the people I talk about in the book is Taylor Stewart. He's young. I don't know how old he is, but he's definitely younger than me. He's still full of like energy and idealism and he's a black man who's from Oregon and when he visited the south the American south and saw the lynching museum he thought I want to do something like that back home in Oregon and so he started a a nonprofit called Oregon Remembrance Project and his work is to go and help communities remember and repair different acts of racial injustice that have happened here in Oregon. So he began with the lynching of Alonzo Tucker in Coos Bay in 1902, and he worked with the Coos Bay community, and they wrote a memorial, they put it on a plaque. And then he's working with the town of Grants Pass, which was a sundown town, and they are kind of envisioning what it would look like to be a sunrise town. And he also wants to work with Oregon City on the on the story of Jacob Vanderpool. And what was so cool about writing this book was I didn't know when I started where it was going to end up. And so even as I'm writing the book, I'm making these connections and I get this email passed on to me from a friend from Taylor Stewart, who he wants to connect with somebody in Oregon City who's working on Jacob Vanderpool. And then I was downtown having dinner with some friends and I had just recently discovered through the help of Oregon Black Pioneers, which is another nonprofit, where Jacob Vanderpool's actual location was and I said to my friends let's go walk over and see where it was and it was 
behind the fence of the property that's owned by the descendants of the Clackamas tribe who used to live there, you know, hundreds of years before. And I was able to get a business card from the guard who was just sitting there by the fence. And I was able to get in touch with the tribe, which we had been trying oh, wow. for years to, to yeah, email you didn't put that and call. In the book. And, no, yeah, because amazing. it happened after, like, <laughs> after it had already been, you know, been written and been sent yeah. to the publisher but wow yeah so i was able to get in touch with the tribe and then i was able to have a zoom meeting with the tribal leaders and taylor from oregon remembrance project and zachary stocks of oregon black pioneers and like just see them getting together in a you know digital room meeting each other for the first time and the tribe is like excited about putting a memorial to Vanderpool when they redevelop this property. And mm. it's like, these things are happening now. Like we're, we're adding on to these stories right now. And it was yeah. so cool to get to see that happen. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of the coolest moments at your book reading, book signing mm. at Powell's, uh, mm -hmm. Grace, Grace, my daughter and I, we went. And we cope with being people of color, I think a little bit, mm -hmm. my, my daughter mm -hmm. and I were similar with our sense of humor, like yeah. awkwardness, or we're like, yeah. oh, yeah. yay, <laughs> I'm glad we're here to represent <laughs> BIPOC people. And one of the great, well, as we're listening, and you guys are, are just talking, yeah. Taylor's mm -hmm. there, mm -hmm. I, I, I could feel a little bit of some, some folks just kind of shrinking, like the, the weight of like, mm. we're terrible, mm. we're white. Mm. Sarah's telling us we're racist mm -hmm. and this is what and we're bad but then when your friend the mayor of Oregon City yeah. stands up yeah yeah and it's like wait she she's black Oregon yeah. City is yeah. a racist yeah. town yeah. racist origins but they have yeah. an African-American mayor now yeah and yeah. it was yeah Grace and I were, we were just loving it yeah um, yeah it was it was a moment of just seeing oh there's progress mm-hmm Mm -hmm. And part of me is, yes, there's progress, but don't let that reality right. let you off the hook. Right. Like, oh, okay, I guess we're fine now. <laughs> we're done here. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, but but I have to try not to be cynical. Mm -hmm. I have to have yeah. gratitude for the, the, the progress, mm -hmm. right? Having a, a, a Black uh, mayor or, or Black president, it it doesn't erase the injustice. Mm -hmm. We haven't talked about it, but I, I learned so much about just the idea of what has been stolen mm. and, and the financial mm -hmm. implications yeah. of, of racism. Yeah. You know, it doesn't erase all that, but, but just having gratitude mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. the steps. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think just you can't do everything, but if you're willing. Yeah. And, and just. Sh sh just showing up and making connections mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, it, it is healing yeah you know you you, you talked about um an author who uh, you know something had happened in the national news and her pastor didn't say anything about mm -hmm, it mm -hmm. and just the, the 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 silence and not acknowledging it which mm -hmm. that that was painful mm -hmm. that was yeah. lonely yeah yeah um, so i'm so glad uh, you're you're writing you've written this book and you're you're doing what you're doing at your book signing. I, I learned about what a sundown town is because mm. I kind of heard about it 
Mm-hmm. And, and there was a couple of months ago, there was a song in the national country song and that was controversial. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of alluding. Mm-hmm. Are you saying, mm-hmm. is this alluding mm-hmm. to like sundown? Mm-hmm. And I was like, what, what does this mean? My thing, uh, I'm too busy or I can't mm-hmm. have, have the mental, mm-hmm. emotional space mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. address, like dig into it. Yeah. But then you, you explained and it, it became personal. Uh, it's just shocking that in Grants Pass, I think it was a sundown town until early 70s, mm. I think it was 72. Or, yeah. And my in-laws and, and my wife, they moved there from Oregon in like about 1974, 75. Mm. And I just learned, you know, I just learned today that my wife she, in the entire time she was growing up there there had only been one black family in town wow. Wow. and she had told me that before and I thought oh they, yeah, that I assumed that it, they were there for like a year or two but mm. she said no they were just there for like a month and when she told me that I was like that it's not on the books the the black exclusion yeah. but people are still being expelled yeah or people are still being prevented whether it's emotional and relational safety, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, people of color coming to, to, to Oregon, yeah, um, or not feeling welcomed or comfortable yeah. here, yeah, it's just like oh wow, um, yeah, and, and yeah, it's not the distant past. No, it's not. I mean, just yeah. last night I was sitting at my son's soccer practice, talking to one of his friends who's biracial and. His friend was telling me about the racist bullying that he's enduring like right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, right now. <laughs> and it's just hit me again. This is, it's, it's history. It's the past and it's so present and it's happening on, you know, on my watch. So this, this book and me stepping into this conversation is just trying to figure out like, okay, how do I respond? How do I help shape my community so that these kinds of things don't have to happen anymore? Yes, yes. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah. So, um, what, what's next for you? Well, so I actually, I don't live in Oregon City. I live just outside Oregon City in Gladstone. So here in Gladstone, I recently learned that there's a property just down the street. I don't know if you're familiar. If you ever come off the Gladstone, the DMV exit, there's a Seventh-day Adventist property there. There's a, it says Christian books and vegetarian foods. Mm -hmm. So I just recently learned that on that property in 1922, 2000 people came out to watch as 110 people got initiated into the KKK right there. And so I just had this idea. I met with the mayor of Gladstone yesterday, and I'm meeting with the Seventh-day Adventists in a couple weeks to ask them. They haven't said yes yet. But I just thought, what if we could have an event on that same property where we invite people to come out, not for the purpose of initiating people into the KKK, but for the purpose of saying, that's not who we are anymore. And we want to be a different kind of community going forward. So 
I don't know. It's still in the planning stages. I've had various different people say they want to, you know, help be part of it. I'm really hoping that the Seventh Day Adventists will say yes. We can host it because I, I, I was I was talking to a friend about this. I don't know if you're familiar with Jonathan Tremaine Thomas. He he founded Civil Righteousness, which is a really cool organization. So I was asking him is this performative? Like, is it performative to just like come together and have a, some kind of ceremony? Because I, th- I think as, as white people are really afraid of, like, we don't want to be performative. And JT's black. And he said, Sarah, every culture has ceremony and ritual. Like it's valuable just to come together and speak the words. This is not who we want to be as a, as a community. So that's my idea. We'll see what happens, but yes, yeah, this is, uh, yeah, this is who we want to be. You, yeah. you, you said one of one of the the most important um, prayers or, or, or desires is for us to heal as a nation, mm-hmm. um, and so yeah, uh, this this is all a part of it, Sarah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, it so is. Keep, keep keep going. Thank you. Thank you. For Thank what you. You've done so far. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thanks. All right. We'll 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 put in the show notes ways for people to to connect with you and mm-hmm. and and hopefully part partner with you with, mm-hmm. with that that yeah that yeah, work. That would be great. Yeah. Thanks. Yes. Yeah. Good to see you again. Thanks for Good coming. Good to see on. you too. Thanks so much.